You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. All right, well, let's get into God's Word. Isaiah chapter 11 this morning, page 575 in your pew Bible. And we also have another text in Hebrews chapter 11. And so would you stand as we read God's Word in Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. And then we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. And you can follow along on the screen. The Word of God through Isaiah the prophet says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and will breathe of his lip uh, and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. That is some killer breath. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. You can follow along on the screen. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who... Through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to escape release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You may be seated. In 1997, my best friend Stephen Thornton converted me to be a fan of the Chicago Cubs. It was because his parents were fans of the Chicago Cubs because of the world's greatest network, WGN. I was a Chicago Cubs fan and have been a Chicago Cubs fan before the Cubs were cool. They were known and have been known as lovable losers. And for at least 108 years, they went from 1908 to 2016 without winning a World Series championship. However, in 2016, my beloved Cubbies won the World Series. However, on the very eve of their win, uh, right as the Cubs had clinched uh, their spot into the World Series, a a piece uh, was written by ESPN by a guy named Wayne Dregs who who wrote about these lovable losers and wrote about this this heart of faith that Cub fans have had for at least 108 years. Here's what he wrote. He says, what does it mean to truly believe in something? 
to know that no matter what your eyes see, your ears hear, your instincts insist, you employ yourself to never ever give in. Even when that belief has led to disappointment and heartache time and time and time again, when do you quit? When do you cave? When do you decide you finally had enough? These are the questions that have faced fans of the Chicago Cubs for more than a century. It was actually at the century mark in 2008 that the same writer wrote a piece and he, uh, he interviewed three lifelong Cub fans, Richard Savage, Helen Kelling, and Betty Mount. All three of those, Richard, Helen, and Betty, died before they could see the Cubs win the World Series. Helen died at the age of 95 in 2010. Betty died at the age of 90 in 2014. But a 100-year-old at that time, Richard, was interviewed in 2008, and here's what he said to the writer, writer Wayne Dregs about the Cubs and their hopes for a championship. He said, we'll wait. We'll wait for our parents, their parents, and anyone else who has cheered for the Cubbies. And when our time here runs out, our kids will wait for us. Mr. Richard Savage died in 2013 at the age of 105, three years before seeing the Cubs win the World Series. For 105 years of his life, he said, it's next year, next year. And he never saw it. Now you say, Pastor, what does that have to do with the text? Just remember that story as we think about some heroes of Christmas. We are starting a series called The Unsung Heroes of Christmas. These are people that we've heard about, that you've heard sermons about, that you've read about, but yet we often take for granted how God used them to bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world. And this morning, we begin with the group called The Prophets. And The Prophets are kind of like Chicago Cub fans who never stopped believing and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And they lived and prophesied in dark days, difficult days of evil, danger, opposition, and persecution. But yet they are unsung heroes, and here's why. The prophets are the unsung heroes of Christmas because they didn't understand Christmas. They didn't understand it. They never saw it, but they truly believed in it and sacrificed much for it. So that is our outline this morning. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it but they believed it and sacrificed much for it. So let's get dive on in. Number one, the prophets didn't understand it. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, we are introduced to Isaiah, and he is a prophet of the Lord. Isaiah is a part of a long line of prophets that we start really in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15 with the first messianic prophecy given by God to Adam and Eve in the garden where God says that there is coming one who is of the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of Satan and all the way, that line of prophets going all the way to John the Baptist, who we'll talk about next week. And we see that Isaiah is one along that line. He is joined with Abraham, with Jacob, with Moses, and Samuel, and David, and Solomon, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Malachi, Micah, Zechariah, and Hosea. And what we find in the Old Testament scriptures is there are some 365 messianic prophecies. These prophecies include things such as the Messiah will be born of a virgin. He will be born in the town of Bethlehem. He will be from the tribe of Judah. He will be of the lineage of David. He will be called Emmanuel. He will be a prophet. He will start his ministry in Galilee. He will perform many miracles. He will be betrayed by a friend. He will die a violent death, and he will rise from the dead. All of those prophecies, which are not encompassing of all of them, 
But yet those prophecies were given thousands of years before Christ was ever born. Now, some of you may say, well, you know what? Maybe Jesus read a lot of the Old Testament as a kid and decided that he was going to live his life that patterned after the Messiah. He really isn't who he claims to be. Well, here's the one thing about prophecy you have to understand. Remember the Bible says that Jesus, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? Well, here's the question I have for you if you're doubting doubting that prophecy. Jesus had no choice in where he would be born. He, He couldn't pick Bethlehem. He didn't say, hey, mom, you know, through the umbilical cord, I need to be in Bethlehem. No. He was born there. Now, Peter Stoner, who in 1957, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, ran the odds of what it would take for one person in Jesus' day to fulfill eight prophecies. And he took his class, his statistical class, and God loved all of those people because they didn't have calculators, they didn't have computers like we have computers, and they sat down with a piece of paper and a chalkboard, and they came to this conclusion that for one person in Jesus' day to fulfill eight prophecies about him predicting who he would be, and he would fulfill those, the statistical odds of that would be 1 to 10 to the 28th power. To visualize that statistical odd, odds, he says, imagine that the state of Texas was covered in quarters two feet deep. It's a lot of quarters. And you put a check mark on one of those quarters, you mixed it in, then you put a blindfold on, the same odds of fulfilling eight prophecies would be the same odds that you would have to walk the state of Texas and the first quarter you pick up is the quarter with the check mark on it. That's how statistically impossible it would be for, for one person in Jesus' day to fulfill eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. But Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies, he fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. And some of the great prophecies we know about, especially about the advent of Christ, the Christmas season, are found in the writings of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah the prophet says this. He says, behold, a virgin shall conceive. Hopefully it'll go up there. Up there, Manning. There we go. Thank you. Wake up. All right. Therefore, I mean, the sermon is so bad, even upstairs is asleep. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name. Say it together with me, so you know you're with me. Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are all Christmas prophecies. Well, here in Isaiah chapter 11 is another Christmas prophecy. It is a prophecy of a Messiah king who would come and usher in the kingdom of God. And Isaiah, when he is given this prophecy in chapter 11, is given a vision by God during the dark days of the gathering storm of the Assyrian army. God had chosen the Assyrians to be his tool to judge the nation of Judah. God was going to use them as an axe of judgment against his people, and then God was going to turn the axe on the Assyrians and judge them. So then in chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, God says that he is going to cut down mighty Assyria like a tree. All the nations are actually going to be leveled by the acts of God's judgment, and there will be nothing but stumps, a forest of stumps. This will be the day of reckoning. And then when the nations are leveled, then the Messiah would come. He would rule and reign the earth forever and ever. So now you get to chapter 11, verse 1, and and Isaiah says that there shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A twig is going to grow from a stump. A branch is going to grow from a stump. Now, a stump is a tree that's had its head cut off. 
a stump is a tree that's been cut down close to the roots. For all intents and purposes, it's dead. And so basically, out of death is going to come a king. Out of what seems to be a helpless, hopeless situation, out of distress and weakness, is going to arise a king. When things seemed hopeless, when the world seemed dark, when everything seemed to be completely over, God's going to arise a king who's going to be from the descendants of Jesse. He's going to be one of Jesse's great-grandsons. That's all in fulfilling scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this, this, this little branch that's going to come from a dead stump of Jesse is going to rule the world. And so as you read Isaiah's prophecy, you see three things about this king. One is he is humble. In verse 1, he comes from a dead stump. He comes from nothing, from weakness. Comes a king. He's wise. In verses 2 and following, he says that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom. That they're reigning, uh, that Jesus, or that the King is going to reign in power from the Holy Spirit, and that he has everything he needs to bring the, to bring the world back from its rebellion and bring it to the knowledge and fear of the Lord. What we see in his wisdom is that not only does the King know what to do, but he has the power to do it. And then he says that this King will be just. That this king will not judge based on outward appearances or others' opinions, but he will do what is true, what is right. He will rule and reign in righteousness and justice. Now, Isaiah is speaking this in a very dark day. And he receives this vision of the Messiah King who's going to deliver the people of God. And he's no doubt longing for this day, but yet he doesn't understand when God's going to do it. He didn't understand how God was going to do it. All he saw it as being is one big event. He had no idea how far apart the events would be. He didn't know that the first coming of Christ would be 700 years after this prophecy. And he also didn't know that at the very least, it would be 2,700 years after. The second coming would be the 2,700 years after this prophecy. See, what Isaiah does in chapter 11, and this is going to help you, those of you that are scholars of the Word of God or want to be scholars of the Word of God, is when you read the prophets, sometimes when you read the prophets, you're like, I can't make sense of any of this. First, it talks about something that's going on there at that time. Then it talks about, looks what appears to be Jesus. And then it talks about like the second coming of Christ. How do I make sense of this? And, and what scholars call this is they call it prophetic perspective. How the prophets saw their vision is kind of like looking at a mountain range. I don't know if you've ever driven through Kansas. Kansas, if you have, you never forget because it's so stinking boring. I mean, it is flat. It is so boring that they have to have signs and different stops to see the world's largest ball of twine just so that you have something to do. It is boring, okay? And if you're from Kansas, God love you. That's, we know why you got out, all right? But it is flat. And as you drive through the flat Kansas terrain, you eventually get to the state of Colorado. And as you look, as you drive into the state of Colorado, you see these great big mountains. And off to a distance, it looks just like one big mountain. But as you drive closer and closer, you see this not just one big mountain, but there are different ranges, different mountains within this mountain range. And so from a distance, it looks like one big thing. But as you get closer, you see that it has all these ridges and valleys in it. Well, that's how the prophets saw their vision. It's kind of like this, this picture here. You have the prophet here. We'll say this is Mr. Isaiah. And he saw what looked to be one mountain, one big mountain. But actually, within this had ranges of the immediate the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. 
And so what he didn't know is he didn't know how long it was going to be from here to here. That was at least 700 years. And he didn't know how long it was going to be from here to here. That's at least 2,700 years. He didn't understand it. All he saw was one big mountain. Now, why is this important? Because he kept preaching it even though he didn't understand it. 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says this. Concerning this salvation, this is the gospel salvation. When we're reading chapter 11, we're talking about how God's bringing salvation to the world. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, that's us, searched and inquired carefully. They searched. They did their research. And they inquiring what person. They want to know who. And the time, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Messiah, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They wanted to know, well, when is the first coming? When is the second coming? How is this going to happen? They didn't even know anything about a second coming. All they saw was just a coming. They didn't have any idea. They wanted to know. And yet the Bible says that they didn't didn't really get that answer. They didn't get all the intricate details. When the Spirit of God moved on the prophets to write, He didn't answer all their questions. He didn't show them how all the pieces fit together. All He called them to do is to proclaim His great salvation to the nations and trust Him. You say, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Do you realize that we're still in that mountain range? Go back, please. We're still in that mountain range. We are in between the first coming and the second coming. We are living between two mountains. The mountains of already and not yet. And we're living in between those mountains. And there are going to be many times in your life, in your Christian walk, you're not going to understand what God is doing. You're not going to understand when He's doing things in your life. But here's the truth. God does not have to answer every question you have. You don't have to know everything that he is doing in your life, and you have no idea if he's going to come back tomorrow or 2,000 years from now, but what we are all called to do is to trust him in the already and not yet. Trust him. The prophets didn't understand it. Number two, the prophets didn't see it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 35, the writer of Hebrews gives us some awesome stuff. I love Hebrews chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11, he talks about how how David and Samson and Jephthah and Barak and the prophets did some amazing things. And you think about what some of the prophets did and some of the things that they saw. We We know that David saw Goliath fall to the ground. We know that Daniel saw the lion's mouth stop. We know that Elijah and Elisha saw the dead rise. We know that Isaiah, the prophet that we read in chapter 11, saw Sennacherib and his mighty army of 185,000 men obliterated by the angel of the Lord in the middle of the night to give victory to God's people. Those are some amazing things. And some of you are like, you know what, Pastor? If I were to see God do a miracle in my life, I would always believe and never have a problem believing. But you know one of the things about the prophets? is that they all longed to see one thing with their own eyes. They wanted to see the ultimate miracle, the coming of the Messiah. The ultimate promise of God being fulfilled in their lifetime is what they live for. You know, when you read the book of Luke, you'll, you'll, get, you'll be introduced to two people, Anna and Simeon. We named our daughter Anna after, or at least I did. I'm <laughs> just kidding, that was a joke. My wife and I did. We named our daughter Anna after the prophetess Anna. And Anna was promised of God, just like Simeon, that they would not die until they saw the Messiah. They longed for it. See, Christmas, a lot of you, you don't long for Christmas. You long to be out of Christmas. But Christmas, for the prophets, 
was the culmination of all the dreams and hopes of hurting people. The hopes and fears of all the years was found in the Messiah, and yet none of them saw it. None of them saw Christmas. None of them experienced Christmas. Even when Jesus was born, the prophecies were over a hundred years or hundreds of years before he came. And so as you read the Old Testament, listen, I hope this helps you unlock a lot of the Old Testament, is that a lot of the Old Testament, you have this running mantra that all the prophets say, how long, O Lord? Have you ever said that to God? How long, O Lord, is this sermon going to go? <laughs> how long, O Lord? Well, the prophet said, how long, O Lord, until the day of reckoning? How long until the king comes? How long until the wolf lies down with the lamb? How long until the children can play with cobras? How long until the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? They wanted to know how long. They longed to know how long. Like a child waiting to go to Disney World. How long, oh daddy? Oh, how long? And you say just a little longer. They didn't know. But here's one thing they did know. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what they know. Remember I told you that they were inquiring, verse 12, please. They were inquiring. They wanted to know when is he going to come? What's he going to be like? And, they, and they, they never did know because here's what was said. Peter says this, but it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And who's the you? That's us. In the things that have now been announced to us through, through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here's what God said to Isaiah. Isaiah, be patient. I know you keep saying how long, but here's what you have to understand, Isaiah. You're not serving yourself. You're not serving your own generation. You are serving saints hundreds of years from now and they are going to see in your prophecy of me the proof that I am who I say I am. It is this truth that will make its infinite value unshakable in their lives. And here's what you can know, Isaiah. You're not going to see it. Your children aren't going to see it. Your great-grandchildren aren't going to see it. But what's going to happen is that others are going to see it they're going to believe it, and you're going to know your life has not lived in vain. You think about that. We live in a day in which we want instant gratification. That if we do something for somebody, we want them to say thank you immediately. If we buy something on Amazon, we expect it to be there in two days or less. We have a day in which we expect instant gratification. And here God is saying to the prophets, you keep working, you keep preaching, you keep proclaiming, you keep trusting, you keep obeying. And that's what they did. And they knew they would never see the Messiah. They knew that they were not going to experience in this life all that God had promised them, but yet they held hope and held out in hope that this would come to pass even though they never saw it. This is why I want you, oh, I hope, I pray the Holy Spirit gives you the joy He's given me right now telling you of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus here is talking about the parables. And after He's talking, He shares with them about the parable of the four soils, and he shares with them about the coming of the kingdom of God. And, and here Jesus is preaching, he's speaking to them. And here's what he says, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. 
For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And they long, I add that, they long to hear what you hear and did not hear. Do you realize this morning that what you heard this morning in the singing of the songs and the preaching of the word that prophets would have given their lives for just to hear. And yet we take it so much for granted. They didn't understand it. They didn't see it. But they believed it. And they sacrificed everything for it. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us about these heroes of faith. That even though they didn't understand and even though they didn't see the promises of God regarding the Messiah, they believed it anyway. And they trusted in the promises of God and they stood on and by the promises of God. And the interesting thing is that the writer of Hebrews at the end of the book gives us two groups of people. Group one are those who received a great deliverance in their life through faith. Here is what group one got. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and received their dead through resurrection. Group two died with nothing on earth that really validated their faith. Here's what happened to group two. They, were, they, were su- they suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They didn't get high. They got beat with stones. They were sawn in two, killed with the sword, lived in skins of sheep, goats, lived in destitution, afflicted and mistreated, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and in dens of the earth. Group one... They got to see cool stuff. Group two, they got to see a lot of bad stuff. Which group you want to be in? Do you know what the common thread between group one and group two was? Is that they believed the promises of God and they were willing to risk everything in their lives for it. They were willing to do whatever it took to pass the word of God to the next generation. Some of the prophets were tortured. You know... Nowadays, if the preacher goes longer than 40 minutes, you feel like it's torture. Some were beaten. Some were put in prison. Some were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, lived in desolation and destitute. Jesus said that it was Zechariah the prophet who was slain with the sword in the temple. According to tradition, it is Isaiah the prophet who was on the run from King Manasseh, hid in a tree. King Manasseh and his men found Isaiah hiding in the tree and Manasseh had the tree cut in two with Isaiah in it. Isaiah is the one who was cut in two. And you know what you see about those great men and women of God? Is they didn't need earthly validation for their faith to believe. They lived a life of faith. And listen, if you want to live a life of faith, a life of faith requires confidence in a God that you cannot see and confidence in the promises that you don't always feel, and confidence and trust in a God that sometimes you have to stand alone for when the whole world seems to be against you. See, if you need validation for your faith, I don't think you're going to make it. Because, listen, this world is changing. It is changing. You say, no, it's not changing. No, it's looking good. Look Look at what's happening. I mean, Kanye's got saved now, so, I mean, everything's looking up. Look... I hope and pray and believe that Kanye became a believer. If you listen to his stuff, only only God can do what he did in Kanye's life. 
But I want you to understand that, that maybe some of us are living in a little Christian bubble. The church 50 years ago used to be seen as the good guys. You know what we're seeing now? We're seen as the bad guys. If you're a Christian now, you're a bigot. As a matter of fact, that's basically synonyms in our modern media vocabulary. Christian equals bigot. Unless you're one of those Christians that embraces everything and really believes in nothing. And, and we're seeing a, a, a tide change. And I, and I believe that in my lifetime, and, and in especially my children's lifetime, that it actually may be illegal for me to preach the Word of God. It, it is going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. This nation, we, J- Pastor John and I were just in Western Europe. This nation of ours is only two, one maybe one generation from being basically Western Europe here. Christianity is not increasing in America. It is decreasing. It is shrinking. Generation Z, 44% of Generation Z does not believe in God. You think about that. 44% of the next generation, the ones that are coming up that are one day going to be president, one day going to be in the Congress, one day going to be your boss, God help us all, doesn't believe in God. It's going to get tough. And some of you are scared of persecution. I think persecution actually may be the best thing that could ever happen in America because it may wake the church up. You hear a lot about being woke. The church might need to get woke because it's been sleeping and it's been couching too close to laziness, complacency, and sinfulness. And when this persecution comes, there's going to be a difference between the wheat and the chaff. It's going to happen. It's going to be a day of reckoning. Here's the question that you have to ask yourself. Am I willing to risk everything in my life for something I don't see? Am I willing to risk everything in my life for something I can't touch and something I can't understand? Am I willing to be like Jeremiah, who was put in prison and left for dead? Am I willing to be like Ezekiel, who was told to lay on his side for 390 days? And you know what he ate? He ate food scraps, and he had to cook them on a dung barbecue. What about being like Daniel when he faced certain death in the lion's den? Or Hosea who was told to marry a prostitute who God said is going to cheat on you. You're going to have faith like that? Are we going to trust God even though we don't understand what He's doing? When the cancer is not in remission? When your family is not holding together? When your spouse is not coming back? When your bank account looks low? How you and I respond to tragedy and disappointment reveals whether or not we really believe in God. Here's the next question. Will we serve God even though we may not see the full fruit of our labor? The truth is, is that most of us may not see what God's going to do through us in our lives. What if your working in this church or in, for the kingdom is not just for you? Do you imagine that? Isaiah was told, listen, you're going to suffer much, you're going to preach, but you're not going to see anything. And your kids aren't going to see anything. It's going to be people hundreds of years from now who are going to learn from you that, that, that I'm doing a work in and through you. You're just a tool. But it's not about you, it's about the next generation. The question is, are we willing, and I want to talk to some senior adults this morning, are we willing to sacrifice for things that we may never see any fruit from? 
Are we willing to live and give for things that we may never see any kind of reward this side of eternity? You know, so many of us want our preferences. We want things to be like we want them. We don't think about people who don't have a relationship with Christ. What if we sacrificed our preferences to reach people who don't have a relationship with Christ? What if we sacrificed who we are and what we want so that the next generation would hear who he is? What if we did that? Will we continue to share the gospel to our family and friends who constantly reject it? William Carey, who's the father of modern missions, when he set out to go to India, he left England and he left opposed by his sending agency. He lived in India for seven years before he saw his first convert. And one of the things that you may or may not know about William Carey is that William Carey had just finished translating the Bible into the language of the people. And the very night that it was completed, his house burned down and everything in it burned up. Let's start all over again. Yet he didn't quit. Robert Moffat, who was a 19th century Scottish missionary in South Africa, it took he and his wife three years to just get from Scotland to South Africa. Three years. He flew Delta. He and his wife labored there for 10 years with no results. But what happened in year 11, 12, and 13 is he saw 120 people come to Christ. What if he had quit year 7? What if he quit year 9? Adoram Judson, who was a first American missionary, spent six years in Burma, modern-day Myanmar, before he saw his first convert. His wife died while they were there. Or David Brainerd, who was an American missionary to Native Americans who went to school, went to seminary, went out to go reach the Delaware Indians for Christ, and being with them just a few months, died. But he left behind a diary of faith, which has inspired thousands upon thousands of people to give their life to missions because of the diary of David Brainerd, 29-year-old young man who risked it all for Christ. Martin Luther said this. He said that faith, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk a death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you ever joyful and bold in your relationship with God and everyone else. Because of it, you freely, willingly, and joyfully do good to everyone, serve everyone, and suffer all kinds of things, never ceasing to love, praise, and rejoice in the God who has shown you grace. See, the end of chapter 11, the Bible says that all those people, all those prophets died in faith not receiving the promise, but God has provided for all of us in this room something better. We have something far better than the Old Testament prophets did. We have someone far better than the Old Testament prophets. We have Jesus. And what they saw in the shadow, we see in completion. See, Jesus is the king who came in humility. He came to the humble town of Bethlehem born in a cave to a poor young virgin girl. 
Jesus came in wisdom with the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him, delighted to carry out the will of God, his Father. He also came in justice, not being swayed by outward appearances or others' opinions, but instead of bringing judgment to the world, he took upon himself the justice of God for our sins, dying on the cross so that we could come in to the kingdom of God. He is no ordinary king. So it's Christmas, Charlie Brown. And so many of us see Christmas as just something in which we eat a lot of food, we buy things we can't afford, to impress people we don't like. It's jingle bells and jangle nerves. It's awkward family conversations. It's matching in pajama onesies. It's traveling far distances to see people that you wouldn't want to spend an hour with. But I want you to understand that Christmas is more than just a gift we receive. Remember the prophets, they longed. They longed. Have you ever longed for something? They longed for it. Christmas is more than a gift we've received. It's a call to action to live a life that declares that Christ has come and that He's coming again. Do you realize that this time of year, people are more open to hearing the gospel than almost any other time of the year? Christmas is the one holiday that is universally celebrated by believers and unbelievers alike. It has been said, statistics say that that people are more open to coming to church, to celebrating Christmas with you if you'll just invite them. Christmas is not just us a time for us to take vacations and to take it easy. It is a time for the church to not be an audience but to be an army, to go out and rescue the perishing and care for the dying with every act of service, every act of kindness, every meal we serve, every gift we purchase, every dollar we give, every time we share the gospel with our neighbors, we are proclaiming that Jesus Christ is King. Wayne Dears finishes his article in ESPN about the Cubs. And he says this, After 107 seasons and more than 15,000 games, there's no fan base that has ever been more tortured. The question is whether or not this is the year it finally comes to an end. Far less for the hyper-teenagers who are always believing diehards in their 20s and 30s and more so for their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. For loving the Cubs is something that is passed down from one generation to the next with the promise to never give up because someday it will happen. Let me read that last sentence again. For loving the Cubs is something that is passed down from one generation to the next with the promise to never give up because someday it will happen. And it did happen in 2016. And I thought about that article. And I thought, you know... For 107 years, Cub fans spent billions of dollars, watched thousands of games, drove millions of miles, flew millions of miles, talked to everyone they knew, analyzed every statistic, got so excited, got so defeated, waiting for a championship. They passed it down to their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, everyone donning The Cubs, white and blue and red, 
hoping to see a championship that they had no guarantee of. And I thought if fans can do that for 107 years, how much more should followers of Jesus do who've been saved by the blood, forgiven of their sins, and have a guarantee of eternal life? See, today, we are not waiting for His first coming. We are celebrating His first coming while anticipating and waiting for His second coming. We don't have a hope so. We have a no so. It's going to happen. We don't know when. But what I'm going to do and what I'm calling you to do is to keep loving Christ and pass that love of Christ on to the next generation until He returns. So the question is this, do you believe? Do you truly believe? in something you may not see, in something you cannot understand. Do you believe enough like the prophets that if God tells you to do something, you do it? That if He tells you to go somewhere, you go? If He tells you to give something that you give, are you willing to risk it all, sacrifice it all, blow it all up? Because you believe. If not, you can still believe. Because Jesus Christ has done absolutely everything necessary for you to have a relationship with Him. You say, I'm not sure about Jesus. Well, think about those prophecies. One man fulfilling eight prophecies is one to the 10 to the 28th power. Statistically impossible. Yet Jesus did not just fulfill one prophecy or eight prophecies. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. He is who He says He is. And if you want hope and peace, joy and love, give your life to Him. Let's stand. Every head bowed. Every eyes closed. This morning, here's the opportunity. The opportunity is this. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, you can be saved today. The promises of God are yes and amen. There's no one in this room too bad they can't be saved. Come and trust Him today. There are counselors who would love to talk with you this morning. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to take that next step of baptism. Maybe you need to fill out on the next step card. I want to be baptized and get baptized this month, showing your faith to the world. Maybe today you need to just come to this altar and pray because you're given, you're losing hope. And maybe you need the strength of God. The true hero of Christmas isn't the prophets, it's Jesus Christ. So let His life live in you. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.